theme is a father's letter to his son. Chapter 1 of the first letter. So open your Bible to that particular page. Mine, it's 1329. Some of you have the same exact Bible. If not, 1 Timothy is just before 2 Timothy. <laughs> All right. I think our singles pastor pointed that out to us one time not too long ago, something like that. So I'm just following his example. As you look at your notes, there are four basic sections that we're going to deal with in these few moments tonight, beginning with the writer, namely the Apostle Paul. Under the introduction, it is just an observation that this is a vivid picture here of the growing church of that time. The church at Ephesus was the church that Timothy was responsible for, and we need you to keep that in mind as we go along. There are some exhortations throughout these letters that are very significant exhortations to the church of any generation. And we have tried to just uh, cite a few of them here in the introduction so you will know what is ahead. An exhortation on prayer and the giving of thanks. We will have a section devoted specifically to women called A Word to the Ladies. And I know all of you ladies will be excited about that particular emphasis, which is one of Paul's exhortations to the early church. There's a lot of question today about what is the role of a woman in the church. Well, Paul gives an exhortation about that, and we'll be dealing with that at a later time. Paul deals a great deal with the leadership in the church. And whenever you read the letters of Paul to Timothy, you're really reading letters to leaders. These are what we call pastoral epistles. These are letters to the church leadership in many ways. And you can learn a great deal from studying First and Second Timothy in that light. Also, however, Paul deals with servants and even with Timothy in that regard, as we will see here even in a few moments. Even the handling of money is in these books or letters. Valuable material on how to handle money in this generation as well as generations past. And perhaps one of the more famous passages of Scripture in the Bible dealing with end-time events is found in the letters of Paul to Timothy. So there is a volume of material here that we will share as we move along through the year in these, the letters of Paul the Apostle to his son in the faith, Timothy. And while we are going through them, why don't you read them over and over and over? That's what I would recommend, that you spend time reading them, not just once. 
These are short letters, so you can read them in one sitting, easy. Read them over and over, because every time you read them, you will see something new. Do what I do. Mark things down that impress you. Take little notes so that when you come back by there, you will not lose a truth that the Holy Spirit made clear to you when you were going past that point at an earlier time. All right? Soak your mind with Paul's letter, letters to Timothy. They will build your faith and they will encourage your walk with the Lord. All right, let's go to the outline. First of all, the writer. The Apostle Paul, of course, is the writer, and we've been learning a lot about him lately as we have been in the mornings in the book of Philippians. In the first century, the writer of a letter began with his own name and then followed with the name of the person to whom he was writing or the recipient of the greeting. So you know that Saul was Paul's Hebrew name and Paul was his Gentile name. He is referred to here as Paul and in Acts the 13th chapter is where the transition came between Saul and Paul. Now realizing that some of you here have been in the church for a while and into the Bible a while, it may seem a little trite to point this out, but remember that there are a lot of new Christians among us, and they don't know sometimes that Saul and Paul are the same person. So it is important that I make that clear in the minds of us all. Saul was his Hebrew name. Look at Acts 13, verse 9. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said. So here is where Luke, writing the book of Acts, picks up the change in his name. Paul was a, a missionary to the Gentiles. And so it is fitting that he moves through his missionary journeys, identifies himself in his letters with his Gentile name and not with his Hebrew name, which was Saul. I think there's even a greater reason than that, if I may just throw my own opinion in. Saul didn't want to be identified with his sordid past. I think some of us wouldn't have mind changing our name at some point, right? Because of the record of life up to that day or time. So when we think of Saul, we think of the persecution of the church. We think of how he went about wreaking havoc with the church. But when we say the name Paul, we think in the opposite terms of a missionary, a man of faith, a man of God, a man who wrote a great deal and edified the body of Christ by his writing and his teaching. So I think that's a reason as well. He's the writer. Now in verse 1, you see his office. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what is an apostle? 
An apostle is simply a sent one, an envoy, or an ambassador, if you please. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul makes the statement, I am, I am an ambassador for Christ. And that's what the word apostle means. So when he uses that term, he is saying, I am sent by Jesus Christ. I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And may I say, friend, that we are as well. We are as well. We are sent ones to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. He has no other apostles but us. His followers, those who have faith in him. And so if we were writing a letter to someone like Timothy, even today we could say something similar. Use your name, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. You understand that? That's a proper greeting from a man who had devoted himself to the propagation of what he had learned about this wonderful person called Jesus Christ. He was available to the Lord wherever the Lord wanted him to serve, when the Lord accosted him on the road to Damascus, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, Lord, what will you have me to do? And from that day till the day he died, Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Aren't you excited about meeting Paul? I can't help but think of the the uh, message this morning and the emphasis of this morning about getting into heaven. One of the persons I'm really anxious to meet is the Apostle Paul. After all, he wrote more uh, books in the New Testament than any other man. We read them over and over. We preach from them. We teach from them. And I, I think it's going to be exciting just to sit down and listen to Paul tell us about some of the things that happened to him person to person. I think that will be wonderful. So we are looking forward to our relationship with the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, his authority. You notice, he says, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand this particular part of verse 1, it would be well to go back into the book of Acts with me and pick up some of the things that were going on in this man's life right after he met Jesus on his way into Damascus. The ninth chapter of the book of Acts and the 15th verse would be a good place to begin. 9.15, Ananias was asked by the Holy Spirit to go and minister to Saul. And the Lord said to Ananias, as Ananias was having a little problem with this man, notice in verse 13, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Now here comes the authority of this man for the rest of his life. 
Get this now in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. No wonder Paul could say in 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, My authority is the commandment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because the Lord spoke to Ananias and said that this man is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's exciting. And I believe God calls people to various ministries and various purposes in life, don't you? Not all of us are called to the same thing. Not all of us can be Peter, the apostle to the Jews. Not all of us can be Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles and to kings and to authorities. But we can all, by commandment, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's important. It was just that this man had a special calling a special authority given him by the Lord Jesus himself. Now go back to Acts 26 for a further insight into why Paul speaks so emphatically about his calling. In the 26th chapter and the 19th verse, Paul is before Agrippa, and he begins to unfold the testimony of his conversion. And he says something here that adds power to what he says in 1 Timothy 1. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, notice it didn't take Paul long to get going, He was on his way to Damascus when the Lord met him. And here it says, I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Paul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, friends, let's pause for a moment and just ask ourselves, how many people can really say that? What a writer Paul is, but more than a writer, a man of conviction and a man of faithfulness. It is required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I just want you to think with me now for a brief moment about any impressions of the Holy Spirit to your mind, to your heart about involvement in the kingdom of God. Have you been faithful to those visions or impressions of the Holy Spirit? Have you been able to say, as Paul said, I was not disobedient? 
how much work remains undone because some of us fall by the wayside. We don't follow through. We don't do that fully which God has asked us to do and shortly after conversion with great exuberance and zeal we embarked on some kind of ministry why I've heard of folk who went down into the inner city and just walked the streets sharing their faith with people feeling that was their calling but it didn't it didn't last they don't do that anymore and I have to ask why where is the vision now? This is what makes Paul so interesting to me, that he never varied, he never moved right or left. He stayed on track and was able to say, even before King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision that God gave me. And when he writes this letter to Timothy, he says, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, I write this letter. And there's power in it because of his faithfulness and his willingness to stick to the task. God give us more people like that. Amen? Amen. Well, then he describes his Lord. He had a love affair with Jesus. And he describes him here, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he uses all of the titles, the main titles of our Lord Jesus here. Jesus means Savior. He died for his people. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So when Paul says Jesus, he's talking about the power of salvation when he uses the word Christ, he's referring to the sanctifier who lives in his people. Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory, the sanctifier living inside of us, Christ. And then Lord, the sovereign who reigns over us. Acts 10.26, he is Lord of all. In the house of Cornelius, he is Lord of all, Jew and Gentile. And he calls him here, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he talks about his victory, our hope, the hope of every believer. We touched that fully this morning. I won't get into it now. But the world is on the other side of the coin, having no hope without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. But we have hope. And Paul speaks of that here in his introduction to Timothy, his son, in the faith. So that's a little resume of this writer, the Apostle Paul. 63 AD is the approximate year he wrote, so figure that out. It's about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it is not too far from where Paul gives his life as a ransom for us all. In fact, it is most believed that these were the last two letters that Paul wrote before he was beheaded for the faith in the city of Rome, and he went on home to be with the Lord. So these are some of the last words he wrote, and they are significant letters to the church. Now let's take a moment to look at the recipient of the letters. Timothy by name. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. 
Now, you don't read very far until you realize how close Paul felt to this young man by the name of Timothy. Paul mentions numbers of people in his letters. He sends greetings to numbers of people in his letters. But there is no question in my mind but that Paul's greatest friend and companion in his labors was Timothy. He always speaks of him with affection. Always. The closest person, undoubtedly, to Paul in all of his ministry was this person who bears the name of Timothy. Now again, we have to go back into the book of Acts to find out how this relationship began. In the 16th chapter, you will find where it started. The very first verse of Acts 16. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Now get this the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. Now notice his father was a Greek. And that's the reason he had not been circumcised. And Paul felt it would be important for him because of the Jews that they would be meeting for this young man to be circumcised. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decree to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Now notice the effect in verse 5 of these two men in their relationship. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now that's how it all began. And from Acts 16, through the rest of Paul's ministry and life, this young man, Timothy, was dear to him in the faith. Paul's spiritual son, converted when Paul visited Lystra, undoubtedly, and became a companion in the work of the Lord. Now, friends, before I move to his task, I don't know if what I have just said means a whole lot to you or not. But let me try to picture it just a little more clearly for you, because I think, in a sense, all of us have with someone something of a relationship like these two had. Sometimes we don't realize it until later on in life. But there is somebody along the way that touched us more deeply than anybody else. Now, just think about that with me for a moment. This was brought to my realization again just this week. When I was uh, thumbing through a file and I found a dedication folder in memory of my pastor when I was a teenager, William Kirschke, who for years served the Sunday school department of the Assemblies of God as well. But Bill Kirschke pastored my church during my 
years just before Bible school, age 15, 16, and 17, right in there. I was so moved by the preaching of Bill Kirschke. I was so touched by the life of William Kirschke and his wife Dorothy. Their influence on me, I didn't realize totally until years later. But it's very clear to me now what Paul was talking about when he talked about his relationship with Timothy. That there's something that happens, a chemistry that develops between certain people. And when you're down, you want them around. When there's something you need to learn, you want to learn it from them. When there's something you want to share, you want to share it with them. They're a confidant. They're somebody you can trust. Somebody you can rely upon. Somebody you know will not betray you or turn you over to an enemy. They are somebody that builds you up in the faith. Am I registering with you? As I thumb through that folder and dedication of my pastor, I saw in there that they had even put a quote from me in that dedication folder or folder of memorial. And I had forgotten that I had said this, but as I read it, it said, I believe no man has affected my life as much as William Kirschke. And I had to stop for a moment and think about that again in light of this teaching tonight. And I believe it's true. Though he has gone now to glory, I love to think of my pastor a man who knew the Word of God and knew how to preach it and knew how to teach it and knew how to apply it and live it and who transmitted it to young men like me that we might have the same desire and the same passion to preach it and to teach it and to make Jesus known to the world. When I read about Paul and Timothy, I think about my pastor and my own life. Whatever God has touched my life with in many degrees goes to that man who influenced me and took time for me in those critical years just before going to Bible college. And then even afterward, after we were married, whenever I would be anywhere nearby where Pastor Kirsky was pastoring, he'd always have me come and preach. And invariably, he'd sit on the front row and cry like a baby. I mean, it was almost embarrassing. Through the whole service, he'd sit there and just weep profusely. I know I didn't preach very well in those days, but it wasn't because of the bad sermon. It was because he was so moved by the fact that this young man he had invested himself in to a degree 
was now a preacher of the gospel as well. And I know that every time he heard me preach, he felt so rewarded that he had given time. And I shall never forget it. Now I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to have some Timothys. I want to have some people who will one day say, he touched my life. I didn't know how much then, perhaps, but now I see that what he put into me has literally framed my life. And whatever it is that God has been able to do through me. Friend, it may be that you will not have any great number of souls to lay at Jesus' feet. It may be that you will not have any great amount of accomplishment to talk about, but let me say this. If you can but develop one relationship like Paul developed with the Timothy, I believe eternity will be well worthwhile and you will be blessed if you take time even to touch one, like Paul touched this young man whom he met at Lystra as a young son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And Paul took him under his wing and taught him and let him travel with him and put him into the ministry, as it were. That's the person he wrote this to. And I think it's a, a beautiful picture of what can happen in our relationships. Well, then his task. Verse number three, Abide at Ephesus that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You see, this young man was now trusted enough that he would plant himself in the city of Ephesus, which, of course, if you know the book of Revelation, was one of the seven churches of Asia Minor that was mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. In fact, the first one that was mentioned, that church was then pastored by a young man by the name of Timothy, charged to watch that flock so that wolves would not enter in and destroy the sheep. Evidently, the church was in great danger. Error was creeping in. So Paul says, stay on guard. Guard the work of God. Watch over it. Don't let them destroy what the Holy Spirit has begun. This was this young man's task. Abide and charge some that they teach no other doctrine. We're going to leave that for a moment and come back to it in the end here. So when we give you the five steps at the bottom of the page, the purpose, we will touch on that just a little bit more. Let's move to the greeting in verse 2. Three blessings that are pronounced here by Paul on Timothy. And the reason I want to take a few moments with these is, is important. I believe what comes out of our mouths. What do you say when you greet people or when you leave people? 
When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said to him, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, folk, you've got to admit that that's a lot better than greeting somebody and saying, Hi, what's the latest gossip? Or, Hi there, have you heard? And begin to spread what would not be beneficial or uplifting to anybody. I love the way Paul wrote and how he spoke. Not only did he, at the conclusion, give blessing, but in the introduction he gave blessing, even in Corinthians, when the church was in terrible error, not only in the Lord's table, but over the resurrection and over the giving of offerings, and you just name it, divorce and remarriage, Corinth was in terrible shape. He spends nine verses commending them in the opening of his letter. Yesterday, no, Friday, I was asked to step into an office here, not mine, but one of the little counseling offices with a... Uh, one of our workers whose nephew was staying with their family and his friend were 16-year-old boys, high school boys, and they were having some conflict. This nephew had run away and there was a little problem and as I stepped in just to try to help for a few moments, this 16-year-old boy, fine-looking chap, began to cry, just started to weep like a little baby in front of his aunt and me and his friend. And I thought, boy, this is tough on a kid, 16. I wonder why he is so emotional. And when he cut control of himself, he began to spill it out. The husband, good man, never commended this boy. He said he criticizes everything I do. And then he would break down and weep again. He said, I even went to work for him. And not one thing I did pleased him. And he didn't even pay me what he told me he would pay me. And he would break down and weep again. The thing that impressed me or depressed me the most was what he said. He said it twice, at least. He's never said one kind word to me. Folk, hey, there is nothing we have at our disposal more powerful than what comes out of our mouths. Our words. We can rape, murder with them, or we can bless and lift with them, and we can choose what it will be. And Paul gives us an example of how it ought to be. When he wrote, he said, grace, peace, mercy. <laughs> now, I don't suppose Timothy was getting a thousand 
in his batting average as a new pastor. I'm sure, well, I know because of, if you read on, you will know that he, he wasn't doing it all exactly right. But Paul did not focus on that, at least in the beginning. He lifted him up. He built him up in the faith and in the spirit. Then he was able to share with him some of the concerns that he had. Do I need to say any more? Let's start modeling that. What do you say? With children. This young boy said he calls me a dummy. How tragic. Let us beware that we don't allow the enemy to take our tongue and use it as a serpent to destroy, to spit out venom. Let us let the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as it enveloped Paul, give us the ability to say grace and peace and mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ. Son, before I spank you, grace and peace and mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why my dad used to say, this hurts me more than it does you. And I used to think, yeah, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) It was killing me. But I understand it now. We've put down here the meaning of these terms. I'm not sure we need to spend any time with them. The undeserved favor of God is grace. You'll find it in Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace, not by works. Mercy is the spontaneous compassion of God. It's a prayer in a way that God will secure and protect him in every situation of attack. May mercy be with you as you face the enemy in your daily ministry. May mercy be upon you as the enemy levels his tanks at you and his guns at you. May mercy accompany your way. How important today for that blessing. And then peace, the state of salvation which results from mercy and grace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. If you can't think of anything else to say, just repeat what Paul said. How about that? Grace, mercy, and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody wants to take you to task, here's how to handle it. Grace, mercy, and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. It will confound them. Don't get into big arguments. Grace, mercy, and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. And let the love of God begin to work miracles. I hope you've heard my heart. It's just so much of this spitting out and destroying with our tongue. We need to have a salvation of our tongue. It's the most deadly weapon we have in our body. That's why God, when he baptized the church in the Holy Ghost, took the tongue and spoke through it languages that they had never learned so that for once they would be totally controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what's taking place when you speak in tongues. You're totally committed and submitted to the Lord, the tongue being the most unruly member of the body.
So Paul speaks grace, mercy, and peace. What are you speaking? Finally, the purpose. Five exhortations. You might want to just take note of them. One is in verse 3. Stand firm, abide, or remain in Ephesus. I don't know how many lately have said, Pastor, how do you discern the will of God? I don't know what to do. And almost like that. And you know what one word of advice I always give is, if you don't know, stay right where you are. Never move until you know God is speaking to you. And this is the advice he gives to Timothy. Stand fast. Stay right where you are. Don't move. Abide in Ephesus. And it wasn't easy in Ephesus. When the way is difficult, it's easy to run. Just read Jonah. <laughs> it's easy to go the other direction when things are tough. But that doesn't solve the problems. You're liable to be in a bigger fish than ever by running. And have you ever felt like giving up? I'm sure we all have. But Ephesians 6, 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So here is an admonition to the believer that is given to Timothy Stand firm, abide there, stay put. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't run from it, Timothy. Stay right there and let God prove himself in your situation. Don't run from the marriage. Don't run from the responsibility. Don't run from the school classroom just to make it easier for yourself. Don't move from the community just to make it easier. It may not be the will of God. Stand firm until God speaks. And then you'll not make mistakes. Second purpose, speak up. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. It's never easy to expose error. The policy today in the world is tolerance. But that was not the way Paul suggested to Timothy. Speak up. When God called Gideon from the threshing floor, he called him to tear down the altars of Baal and then to build up the altars of God. And I'll tell you, it was not easy for that man, that farmer, to go out and do what God asked him to do but he had to speak up against the evil and the idolatry of his time. He had to expose error. And we must, as a church of Jesus Christ, do the same today. As long as we have the Bible backing us up, we must speak up and speak out so that there will be at least a voice in this world saying, this is the way, walk in it. And that's what Timothy was asked to do. Thirdly, in verse 4, he was asked to take care or give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. What Paul was saying to him here was don't get sidetracked with these other issues. Keep the clear vision of God. 
Don't substitute is another term that I have written down in the margin of my Bible. Don't substitute. Don't give heed to fables. Don't get caught up in all of this that man brings along. Now we've got channeling in our time. And Shirley MacLaine's film on television is caught now. The talk shows and everybody's talking about the latest thing, channeling. Oh, it's just another of all of the long line of insidious lies of the devil, be it transcendental meditation, be it yoga, be it channeling, whatever it be, don't give heed to fables and genealogies. Take care that you stick with what really works. That's what Paul is saying. Don't get sidetracked. It's a bunch of baloney. It's a malarkey. It's of the devil. Identify it quickly and move from it just as quickly. And then you jump over to verse 18, and he tells him to wage a good warfare or fight on. Now, whether we like it or not, we are soldiers and there's a war on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. How many understand what I'm saying? Lift your hand. All right, we're in a, we're in a battle. And so this admonition of Paul to Timothy is an admonition to us. Wage the good warfare. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This isn't a bunch of pussyfooting around. We've got to take a stand. We've got to speak up. We've got to be firm. We can't be sidetracked. And we have to fight if we're going to survive. It's war all the way. And we do our best fighting in prayer and intercession. That's why we want to see you at the morning prayer meetings and the other prayer meetings of the week. That's how we fight. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, he says, keep true. Having faith and a good conscience, that's keeping true, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan. And you know that that is something the church can do? Deliver them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We'll talk about that in a total session, just these two men, about church discipline coming up, Hymenius and Alexander. I'm going to devote a whole Sunday night to church discipline and tell you what the Holy Spirit is saying to us about church discipline. That's scary. He turned them over to Satan. How would you like that if Pastor Cole and the deacon board of this church turned you over to Satan because you wouldn't behave yourself? Well, what I think the Holy Spirit is pointing out is that the flock is important and he's not going to let two destroy the flock. So he says to him, keep true. Don't let your faith go shipwreck. And I'll see you through, and the church at Ephesus will be blessed, just as the church in Sacramento. I want to close with 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13, as a summary before we go to our communion together. Just look at it with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, 
My mother used to say that to me. She would say, Glenn, take heed. The Bible says, he who thinks he stands could fall. Who that used to bug the life out of me when she'd do that. You know how cocky we get when we're kids. Boy, she could see through me like a book. I could just see that finger. Glenn, take heed. And when she really wanted my attention, she'd say, Glenn David. Boy, then I knew I'd have it. Take heed, lest you fall. Now here, get this. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, hallelujah, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Somehow over all of this opening to these letters, those verses come through to me. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Church, that's a message for all of us tonight.